Space, the final frontier. Captain, I'm getting something quite unusual on the scanners. What is it, Mr. Spock? Captain, it appears we have just entered another time warp. We are now approaching Earth of the past. My scanners say it is sometime in the early 2020s on the planet. Mr. Zulu, maintain orbit. Captain, I'm picking up a request for communication. Miss Uhuru, please patch them in. Hey, Captain Kirk, this is Adam from Earth. I'm kind of from your future, but also technically your past. It's weird, trust me. Anyway, we've been anticipating your arrival here for some time. You see, we are currently at a branching point in our history, and we require your influence to go down the correct path. Captain. Yes, Mr. Spock. According to the computer, this man is indeed correct. If we do not help him, our existence may become non-existent. I see. And what is it, Mr. Garrett Clark, is it? Affirmative, Captain. What is it you would have us do to help you? Well, you see, Captain, we're in need of more logic down here. Actually, would it be possible to beam Mr. Spock down? We're big fans. You could come too, Captain. But, you see, we will have nowhere for you all to sleep at night. We can't figure out how to house all the people in our towns and cities. This is highly illogical. You currently have all the natural resources and technical knowledge to get the job done. It appears your archaic systems of zoning, building codes, and crony capitalism are to blame. That is correct, Mr. Spock. Big fan, by the way. All right, Mr. Garrett Clark. Out with it, please. What is it you need us to do? Well, Captain... If you could have everyone on your ship and all their friends tune in to the Tiny Logic Podcast and become a Patreon member, we believe we just might have a shot at helping our current culture figure out a more humane future where everyone has a home. Captain, what he's saying in a really long, drawn-out way is that tiny homes on wheels should be legalized everywhere, and everyone should get one and have many places where they can easily park them. Well, I think we can do that. Crew... This is Captain Kirk speaking. I'm directing all members of the Starship Enterprise across all galactic networks to listen to the Tiny Logic podcast and go to patreon.com slash tinylogic and sign up to be a member. Our future depends on it. Kirk out. Captain. Yes, Mr. Spock. Requesting permission to retreat to my quarters and listen to the full archive of the Tiny Logic podcast. Captain, this shit is fire. As the kids of this time would say, it hits different. So logical. It's got me feeling some type of way. Patreon.com slash TinyLogic. Welcome to the Tiny Logic Podcast, where we have conversations with those on the front lines of the Tiny House Revolution. My name is Adam Garrett Clark. In 2015, I created a $300 a month housing opportunity for myself and five other friends in an off-grid tiny home community in Oakland, California. Since then, tiny homes have taken over my life. This show is for the tiny converted to talk shop and get us all housed. You can find more information about the work of Tiny Logic at tinylogic.ninja. Nationally, we all know we live in a very polarized time right now, but it's interesting to note that if you zero in on a hyper-progressive city like Oakland, zoom in even closer to West Oakland, 
a working class, historically black neighborhood on the edge of the city. The passion, the anger, the entrenched sides, it's all still present, only the players are different. And the subject is the encampments. At the risk of pissing someone off, I'll just boil this issue down onto two sides, with the caveat that nothing ever is black and white. And in fact, the point of this conversation that you're about to hear today is to highlight that. On the one side, you have the renters, the homeowners, the business people who are fed up. They have compassion fatigue. They see the trash piles, the fires, the lawlessness, and they want their city back. Let's call this group the NIMBYs, not in my backyard. On the other side, you have the activists, the humanitarians, the renters, the homeowners, but also the houseless folks who live in encampments. These are people who have seen the ugliness and cruelty of government power inflicted on the powerless and voiceless. They are fed up with the callous policies and enforcement that confiscate people's RVs, trash compact their possessions, and move human beings along like vermin. Let's call this group the Advocates. I think for everyone on all sides of this clash of perspectives, there is this psychic trauma that's motivating all of this anger, and it comes from just seeing daily the fucked up nature and conditions that people are living in. It just creates this primal response in us that something is very wrong. Now, I'd place myself squarely on the side of the Advocates. And I'll speak for myself in saying that there's there's something about the encampments, if I'm honest, that feels worth supporting beyond centering the lives of the people that live there. If I had to put my finger on this, I'd say it has to do with this understanding that land is necessary for survival, and yet our current systems don't really have a way to get land to most people. Encampments have become this interesting way of taking pieces of the commons, not private land, but public land, and making it available to people who need it. Politically, that's interesting. But when you really center the perspectives of the lives of people that live in encampments, I've found that a majority of them would jump at a chance at traditional housing. So this conversation is so fraught right now that I recently received a coordinated smear campaign for merely attending a press conference with my guest today. And it wasn't from the NIMBYs, it was from the people on the advocate side. So my guest today is Seneca Scott. He's a former labor organizer. He ran for city council in 2020, and he is the executive director of a new nonprofit called Neighbors Together, which I'd say is propelled primarily by the NIMBY perspective. Uh, They are animated by the demands that the city should double down on encampment management. Now, on the surface, Seneca and I Two elder millennial black men who have deep love for West Oakland are on different sides of this debate, but Seneca is a friend, and I've known him for years, mostly from his work at Bottoms Up Community Garden, which I'm a huge fan of, Uh, but he's also been a lead organizer of Oakella, a summer music festival, and just a a fixture in in the Lower Bottoms, uh, a neighborhood in West Oakland. So what I love about Seneca is the fact that he prides himself on not being put in a political box. He's a black union organizer who shoots guns with Trumpsters and drops arguments for reparations as frequently as he talks about the ills of encampments. Seneca is a man, like you, my dear listener, of nuance. 
And what he wants to do is get people talking. He wants to get ideas and perspectives in negotiation, talking about solutions. And I think it's beautiful. I think we should all be doing more of it. So this conversation hopes to be a model of how we can talk about this highly charged issue that's happening in cities across the country. I know I say this a lot, but you're going to want to stick to the end on this one because uh, things get really juicy and animated and interesting towards the end of the conversation. So stick with it and enjoy. Yeah, so I actually, my my first question is is about your name, Seneca, because I, ah. I actually was learning about Stoic philosophers right around the time that I met you. So I'm just curious, like, did you name yourself, or did you? Are your parents uh, Stoic? My, my mother named me. Um, she named me after the combination of the philosopher and the Seneca Nation tribe, oh. which is the birthplace of the women's suffrage movement in Seneca Falls, New York. Oh wow! Okay. So she was, uh, she was a philosopher feminist at Ohio University back in the sixties. Wow. Seventies. Wow, that's yeah. super cool. So there, so there was a tribe. You said, in yeah, upstate Seneca New- Nations is part of the five nations, uh, the very powerful nations in upstate New York that we actually based our series of government system of government around the Iroquois. You're what? saying you I didn't know. Is. I didn't know this. Are you serious? You're saying American systems of government. We based our system of government and 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 three houses: executive, legislative, and um, judicial branches off of the way they set up the government in these tribes. Whoa. And there were the five nations. It was the Cayuga, I went to Cornell. Ithaca was the capital of the five nations. Okay. And I don't want to I don't want to butcher the name cuz my friend would be really mad at me. Yeah. Um his father was the director of Native American programming at Cornell. He's currently uh one of the directors at the Smithsonian. His name is Shalasa uh I'm sorry, Barrero, something like that. But okay. my friend Anun Ducks uh, that I went to school where it was, it was very, there's a flag. It has a, a square in the middle and a bunch of triangles. You can pick it up on your Google. Okay. But if you look up the five nations uh, of the Iroquois in upstate New York, it, it's a tremendous history uh, about this, this group of people. Wow. I got I to gotta get in there and Google that. And the birthplace of the women's suffrage movement in upstate New York was at Seneca Falls. Wow. Okay. So all the feminists know that location and like where their movement started. And you said your mom was, was, a, was a political philosopher? She was in school for education, but she was really big into philosophy, and she was a strong feminist. Um, I think by then they were on third-wave feminism by the 70s. So that was the first wave, which is actually women's suffrage movement um, was, was closely aligned with the, uh, what is it, with alcohol, um, prohibition. Okay. Right, a lot of people don't know that it was the women's suffrage movement that led to prohibition of alcohol. Hmm. Um, or I, I could be getting the order wrong, but it was definitely organizing done by women because of the the lack of responsibilities of the husbands, and they were spending all their money, and people were just getting so drunk hmm. that they went and got alcohol banned. Wow, it was organizing effort. Um, so yeah, it's. That's the name. That's the history. Uh, I didn't start studying Stoicism too very recently either. Oh, really? Even though it's my namesake. Yeah. Maybe eight years ago, uh, I started to 
write a book about communication because hmm. I, I, I negotiate for a living hmm. and there's a lot of communication and, and strategy involved. And I'm also very interested in mass communication and the codifying it, right? So there's a lot of books I could talk about, but I started researching Seneca because Seneca, father Seneca the Elder was a rhetorician in ancient hmm. um, Rome. Yeah, I think and so. It was Rome. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, you talk for a living? I talk shit for a living too. It's awesome. I'm like really, really aptly named. Yeah. So um, I, I learned a little bit about stoicism. It's actually pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so you, you do communication for a living. You do, you tell me a bit about what you do right now. Mm. Currently, I'm the executive director for Neighbors Together. We're a nonprofit that was very recently founded in Oakland. Uh, to promote resilience, unity, and preparedness in our neighborhoods. Right, 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 right. And we're going to be launching your, or doing a press conference for this in a couple of days, right? Yeah, very yeah. soon. Tuesday, May 25th right. uh, at 11 a.m. at Neighborship. Well, so before we get into na- uh, Neighbors Together, which which is like definitely sure. juicy like stuff, that. but like tell me a bit about your 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 background. I know, so you ran you ran for city council. But you also were a union organizer? So, yes. Uh, my former education from Cornell University is from the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Okay. And basically, you learn all about labor history, you learn about labor law. Many people go into either HR or legal fields. Um, some people become labor lawyers. A very select few, like myself, uh, become union organizers, which is really what the school was founded to train. Right, and we had the benefit of you know training under some of the top top minds in labor. Hmm. Uh, I went out to California right after in Southern Cal to be an organizer, hmm. organizing unions for I don't know maybe fifteen years actively. Wow! Until I semi-retired to do more community organizing. Uh, it started as a sabbatical, but it turned into a sort of a semi-retirement from labor. I'm fully retired from the labor movement now. I no longer consult. I uh, consulted for a while negotiating contracts. Um, I've negotiated lots of contracts. I always call myself an organizer, uh, even though I've had lots of jobs. But I've been a director for a bunch of unions. I came to Oakland to be the East Bay director for SCIU 10 to 1. Okay. And a uh, big labor union up here back to the bar strike. I know everybody remembers the bar strike. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. So we were, that was our, our union that, that um, Workers went out for actually safety reasons. Most people don't know that. Okay. And what ended the strike was, unfortunately, two people who were replacing our workers because they said it was safe died the very week that they started working, huh. which unfortunately, unfortunately for them, uh, loss of life is always traffic, tragic. Yeah. But, I mean, we did tell them that yeah. somebody could die. Yeah. So they were negligent. Right, they're extremely negligent, and they settled the contract because it was obvious that there were some safety issues because people are dying, yeah. and our workers refused to work because they didn't want to die. Yeah. And most people thought it was about the money, but the financials were actually settled uh, pretty early on. We didn't strike over that. Huh. But you know, just being in the labor movement, negotiating contracts for, for cities and, and public entities mainly uh, gives you a different skill set for how to negotiate. Uh, lots yeah. of things in life are negotiations, so... And also how to organize, um, and and most importantly, build up your constituency and make it about the people who you're organizing. Yeah, a good organizer should be able to replace themselves. The fact that I no longer work on the labor movement, I, I say that with pride because mm. I've replaced myself hmm. time and time again 
up with new organizers that I've trained. I have I still recruit, you know, anybody who has a, a union who has a new staffing needs, you can talk to Margulis and Patterson if mm-hmm. you don't know them. Yeah. Uh, my corner professors, but you can talk to me too if you don't know those guys. Just mm-hmm. give me a call and we'll get you some good staff via communications or whatever. So I'm still active in the labor movement as a supporter, but uh, we're on to doing a little bit more bigger things to support more of a larger constituency. Right, which so that, that makes sense that you you had that background to then make that, that leap to run for office. Tell me tell me a little bit about why what propelled you to, to run for city council. Uh, what's the last part? Propels me to what? What propelled you to run for city council in District 3? Ooh, so uh, we entered the race the very last minute. Uh, I went there on Wednesday and said, hey, I want to run for city council. The lady said, the deadline's Friday, and you got to have all the signatures, and every one of them had to be a registered voter. And um, so we made it. Obviously, I ran, so we made the ballot. Yeah. But what made me want to run was just that I didn't see anyone on the ballot who spoke for my particular district. Mm-hmm. And District 3 has, has I want to I say, unique problems because many people are going through the same stuff, but if you Take all of it together, um, the development, the proximity to San Francisco, the development again, mm-hmm. uh, right, the gentrification of neighborhoods, right. the fact that 70% of Oakland's homeless lives in District 3, mm. and homelessness is a huge problem right now across the country in California, yeah. and the fact that District 3 is a historically black neighborhood, yeah. um, there's a lot of nuances here, right. and you know, the incumbent to me was sort of tapped out. Um, she did had done her best. And, you uh, know, she had, yeah, Lynette McElhaney, she had tragically lost two of her sons. Well, her right. son and grandson that got violence. Right. And it's only so much someone can take. Right. Especially when you have all these problems with dealing with. So, um, she did a good job as much as she could do. And Bridget Cook, her staffer, she filled in for her and stepped up and was our council person. You know, acting council person, I would say, for a while, and, and did a good job too. But it was sort of time for a change. And you also knew that people here didn't want to vote again. There was a, a strong uh, resistance to wanting to keep the same sort of energy going because of the frustration about compounding problems. Mm-hmm. And when you can't assign that to one individual, y'all know what time it is in politics. So if you're not doing a good job, you're going to lose your job, right? So, and I also didn't see anybody else that was running at the moment who. I thought was really going to follow the issues of West Oakland. Our eventual winner, Councilperson Fife, yeah. uh, had a big movement for Moms for Housing. Yeah. And this is an important movement because it speaks to homelessness. That's an issue in Oakland. Yeah. Right? So, but these are macro. The approach was more macro to me. I, I saw her campaign being more of somebody I would have voted for for Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did vote number two for Councilperson Fife because we have ranked choice voting and we supported each other in our campaign. So shout out to Fife. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. So um, you came in third, right? I came in third out of six people. Yeah, And we, we're the only ones who, there were only four serious contenders. I'm sorry, there were five serious contenders. Yeah. We didn't hear from one of them, right? So out of all of them, I spent the least amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um. I had zero direct mailers, zero billboards, zero lawn signs, yeah. and very few volunteers. And I think the reason that we did so well was because we had a very powerful message of neighbors together. We deserve better. It was an inclusive message. 
It was a yes and approach rather than a no but approach. And it was the beginnings of what we're calling a post-partisan movement where we're looking to move past the divisive politics, the secretarial movement that is taking hold of our political sphere and return some sort of uh, intelligent discourse to our policymaking. Uh, Oakland is the best place to do that. Per capita in Oakland, you have the most awesome people. You have some of the most educated people, the most intentional people, right? And so we're going to give a shot at, at doing what we know we can do and not being dominated by, by larger forces outside of Oakland. Right, this is not just an Oakland thing. We don't live in a bubble. Right. Right. So it's it's it was a powerful message. I think that people who heard it voted for me. Unfortunately, yeah. we didn't get it to enough people to to do very well. But yeah, it's turned into this. Well, let's yeah. So let's get into neighbors neighbors together. So I I mean I love your approach. Uh, we've talked a bit about this. About I I love the the, the framing of post partisanship because I do think while we're we're supposedly all blue staters here or whatever democrats there are parties and and i i kind of think about it this way and i'm curious if this is how you see the landscape but i feel like there's kind of four factions there's there's the what i would call the nimbies the not in my backyard folks who um who resist a lot of housing efforts affordable housing efforts um which i think kind of is it goes against their interests uh, mm-hmm. to to because they're they're often also very um, animated about the the, the encampment crisis, um, and then you have the advocates who stand up for the little guy. They stand up for for the folks that are down and out in, in the encampments um, and push back against. You know they have a framing that the city is just constantly pushing people around, um, and then I think you have. You have the tenants' rights uh, folks, and they don't always get along with the advocates. They often fight. I used really? To work, yeah, I, I did I, not know that. I used to work. Uh, used to work for for an organization, Cause Who's to Just Cause, and you know during the budget conversation, which is happening right now, there's often jockeying between the folk, the advocates that are fighting for money, like the hogs of the world, fighting for money for homeless services. And the tenants' rights folks who are saying, "Well, we need more money to for tenant protections, for um, rent subsidies to keep people from going onto the streets." Mm-hmm. So there's that that disconnect. And then there's but if you guys are still house and we're the priority versus hey, you know, we don't want to add to the problem, so we need to show it up over here too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and then I think the fourth is is what you would call like the yimbies the the yes in my backyards the folks that are like build 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 who have a lot of conflict with the tenants rights folks who have an analysis that it's not about a supply and demand a lot of issue. Conflict. yeah so you've got i think you've got kind of like four different groups that's kind of how i see it and they they all kind of battle each other and we I th- have I this I think like there's another group okay yeah tell there's me. a fifth group yeah and that is your group of Oakland people who are compassionate, intelligent, but are affluent homeowners. Many of them are black. Some mm-hmm. of them are older. Most of them are over 50. Mm-hmm. And they're not NIMBYs or YIMBYs. Mm. They're more YIMBYish than NIMBYish, mm. but they're just fed up. Mm. And they're growing constituency because they're either divesting from Oakland or they're doubling down on a political resolve to see rapid change. Mm. And they're a group that is you didn't mention because they're not organized. I know. I love that you brought that up because, uh, I mean, yeah, there is 
there is this, especially in Oakland, yeah, there is this like landed class of of, of black folks, and they, yeah, they don't, they don't like a lot of these these mostly white folks that are that are moving in, doing weird things in RVs and and tiny homes. Often, That's they don't like it. One of the big clashes yeah. I've seen. Um, no, it's a great point. Um, okay, yeah, so. But but I think the other big thing to say is that ultimately it seems like everybody and I think your analysis from our conversations, if I if I hear it right, is that ultimately we're we all want the same thing and there is We say we do. Yeah. And well, that's the, that's where the nuances come in. What is the thing what is the thing, Adam, that we all say that we want? Yeah, I mean that is the great that is the ultimate question, right? I think I th- to answer that I think I, th- I if I had to answer that I would say that everybody wants uh, a clean city where people are living um, in humane conditions. There aren't fires. There aren't piles of trash. There uh, there isn't suffering in needless suffering. Needless suffering. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think adding to that is is affordable places to live. Um, and the question is just can the communication, can the ne- negotiation, can the postpartisan conversation find those points of agreement, um, find those solutions, mm-hmm. rather than just like at face value, folks just resisting each other and the status quo continues, which 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 kind of seems like, you know, is happening. It's, it's happening and getting more intense to the, to the divisiveness as people are getting entrenched in their positions. Uh, and and I, I attribute it to the economic collapse and K-shaped recovery post, post-COVID that's adding to this intensity because, and there's a, there's a brilliant blogger by the name of Tessa Loves Robots, if okay. you wanna look her up. And she has a quote, I find she's from communist Russia, she okay. moved to New York City, she's a performance artist, and she's, I don't agree with everything she says, but she's freaking out about what she sees as emerging fascism in America. Okay. And one of the quotes that really stuck to me that I've taken, thank you, Tessa, is I find that in living under oppressive systems, when people can no longer can compete financially, they try to compete for more superiority, and mm-hmm. that's worse. Mm-hmm. And here's, the, here's the, the rub on that. You can compete financially healthy. You can compete very unhealthy, which is why we're here now, predatory capitalism. But you can compete financially healthy, right? Like you can have multiple restaurants on the row, and now it's restaurants row, and attract more customers to the general location, right. where versus standing alone as your space and trying to make it. Where then now you're actually because of the competition, you're you're better suited to have a better chance of success. So there is a healthy space that can compete over ideas and financially, but when you're competing over more superiority, it's when you end up in crusades. Mm. When you end up in crusades, you know, a lot of people die. How do you see that applying to the to the housing crisis? How do you to what crisis? The housing crisis. <laughs> because the political spectrums uh, are very divided, and you have zealots on both sides of the political structure. Um, how would I put it? The 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 far left and the far right consider themselves to be one in twelve on a ruler. When really, I consider them to be more than one in twelve on a clock. 
You're talking about like nationally, yes. national politics. So wise. if you take the super far left right. socialists, I don't think anybody should pay for anything, and I want to be a, a communist country, right. and I want to make this happen overnight somehow without act, without fighting for it somehow. I don't know the plan, but they want that. Yeah. Then all the way over here, you want. I just want to like make black people slaves again. Like that would be kind of cool right, right. if we could just restore the white man back to power <laughs> right. and like do the American thing the way that we like to have it. Yeah, and it's a very, very far divide, and they're, they're clashing right now. And both sides, Team Red and Team Blue, are weaponizing their their loudest, most radical voices. Hmm. But the issue with these loud radical voices is that they both are fascists. Mm. The approach is fascist. You do it's not. It is a you must do what I say, right? Or there's punitive, there's punishment, right? Right. And what we say is the way it goes. We have the moral superiority, right? Right. I I, I mean when I, when you say that superiority too, I I think a lot about just the status of living in um you know being a homeowner in the Bay Area is. I heard a podcast recently where somebody said, like, I, I was able to buy a home in the Bay Area, and that's like a, you know, a, a, feat, a feat in and of itself, right? Um, but even being a renter and, and looking down at somebody who is living in a tiny home on wheels, living in an RV, um, that I think that status or stigma, which is like the other side of that coin, is is a big part of, of um, at least uh, the, the very issues. Very much yeah. so. And, and it's, a, it's a big... I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No, no, go ahead, okay. go ahead. It's the big part of it because, and I've been thinking about this a lot um, lately. I'm under the belief that we're, we're collapsing as a country. I think we look, if you read Chris Hedges, if you read, um, uh, what is his name, who wrote Gunshot to Steel? Uh, yeah, Diamond, Jared Diamond. Yeah. But all of them have books about this. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot of check boxes that you can check off. Right, and a big one being inter-elite competition mm-hmm. that signals the in for possible collapse. There's a lot of financial check boxes. I'm not going to go down those rabbit holes, but you can make a strong case that we're collapsing as a country. And yeah. I don't mean Mad Max the Purge. Argentina collapsed twice in the past 30 years. You can yeah. still go to the capital and go on vacation. Yeah, England no longer has the pound silver as the world reserve currency. Yeah. You can go to London and get some fish and chips. Yeah. You know, they're still there. Well, I mean, I agree. And I, now you're reminding me of your how you're a prepper, you told me. And, I'm and definitely prepared. This is in our mission statement for Neighbors Together. Yeah, no, tell me about that because I think I, I, think I have a, a similar analysis as you. I'm curious to hear, but like, yeah, like you're saying, we're, we're, we're headed in a, in a bad direction. You don't want me to go into this. <laughs> That is a whole nother podcast. I would say that people should be very should, should be very cautious of their normalcy bias. Right. They should do some deep dives into history where other places have collapsed. Right. They should do a area study, if you will, of their own environment. That's why you see emerging. We have emerging homeless population. Right. We're not drawing any any parallels to the Great Depression. Right. And the quote unquote Great Unwashed. Unwashed. Tell what they call it, the growing mob of people who are homeless okay. in the Great Depression. We have the Great Unwashed 2.0. Right. I don't say that to be insensitive to people who are homeless. No. Yeah. Right? But here's, here's the reason why you have this class divide and it's so intense. We're also at the same time as what we're collapsing. This these are all my thoughts, right? Yeah. So, and I'm just a normal person who, who, who reads books and watches YouTube. But yeah. I read more books than I watch YouTube, and I think <laughs> that that's important. I think that's a smart choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I love YouTube. It's a great place. 
right, to share thought. And, and but many people don't have discretion. So people are people are literate, but they don't have our comprehension skills because our poor education is. Yeah. So we're not able to fully take advantage of the information age because of our poor education. Yeah. And our ability to, to actually categorize and, and not be swung by propaganda, right? Or or well crafted messaging. So I think that when it comes to the question of why is there this this disdain for people who are slightly above and but they're really in the same place when you look at it because they're just as vulnerable to being in there, if you lose, you go without that paycheck for two months, some of these people are on the street. Right. Right. 80% of Americans prior to COVID, 80% of Americans prior to COVID did not have $1,000 for an emergency. Right. House, households, my apologies. And do you, right? do, you, do you think that, that that stress that a lot of renters and homeowners are under is in, inform some of the projected the, the anger that, that, that can come out towards, yes. towards it's, like, it's fear and projection. In the encampments? It's fear and projection. Because they know that they're for the grace of God, they go I, and that grace may be waning because I'm, I'm messed up in the game too, right? And there's a lot of st- enormous amount of stress and enormous amount of grieving after the pandemic. The yeah. pandemic just made people realize that we were collapsing. These things were already happening oh, yeah, yeah. if you weren't aware of it, yeah, right? People yeah. who were following our banking system, who were following things like the repo crisis in 2019 with our bank, following quantitative easing and money printing for the last 12 years since 08. Right. You know this stuff, but to most people, that those words go over your head. Right. I don't even know what the tech you're talking about because only 10% of Americans even own stock. Right, now, right, right. fintech is factually changing that as more and more people are trading with crypto and stuff. But as it stands now, like the wealth is really consolidated amongst the very few, and it's, it's consolidating even more. The, the top three people have more money than half of America at this point. Right. Right. So I want to finish uh, one more point yeah. that I, I would make. I think that we're, we all know that, that we're emerging into a feudalistic state. And uh, the economic mobility that we used to have is, is becoming more uh, difficult. And soon to be where it's just not mobility anymore. Like mm-hmm. there is no mobility there. That's why we call it getting out the mud now. That's the current youth. Uh, when the young talk about making it like, out the gutter, we used to say we come from the gutter, they say we come from the mud now. Hmm. And I like that because that means that the you know, mobility stuck. Mm, interesting. And it, it's, you can draw direct parallels to why people are not going back to jobs right now. Mm-hmm. So what some people's line is, so here's where you get the, the Team Red and Team Blue. Right. Team Red's line is they're not going back to work because everybody's getting government subsidies right. and people are lazy right. and they don't want to go back to work. That's Team Red. Yeah. And Team Blue says if you don't want to pay a living wage, and, and why would you expect people to want to come back to work with a crappy job? We're trying to get free. We're done with that. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, you can't afford to live off can't. of the minimum wage. Both sides have validity. Yeah. Both sides have really good points. But what's an added point people are considering is this. No one wants to. In America, we equate goodness with money. Yes. Yeah. And we equate being poor with being bad. Right. So if you're poor in America, we're thought of being less than. Yeah. No one wants to be poor. We go through enormous lifts in America. The poorest people buy the most consumer 
do the most consumerism so they can put it on social media right. so they can show people that I have worth because the way that we equate our worth in this country is through how much money you have. Yeah. So now that we're rapidly devolving into feudalism and we're collapsing, people are like, I don't want to be a serf. I'm not going back to work at McDonald's so you can laugh at me. Right. We, we have a disdain for working class people. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, I think it, to bring it back to the local level for a sec, I think, like you're pointing, I, somebody broke it down recently. I'll, I'll try to link it to the podcast, some social scientists, but where just for being a human being, you have an intrinsic set of values, um, you know, and se- a set of dignities. And I, I would say that the advocates see, the, adv- the homeless advocates see human value in that way. And then there is another side in all of our minds about how we see value, which you just touched on, which is value is created based on how your worth, what you can earn, um, your merit, the meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? So you, 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 you put in hard work, you put in study time, you're smart, you get these skills, you get money, and, and you know if you can afford it, if you're valuable, you can stay here. Um, and, and so, yeah, and I think that that, that kind and of- you're a good person. And you're a good person, right. If you fucked up, you know, if you made some bad decisions, well, sorry, you know, tough life. Um, and I think that, that those two sets of human values, which are in all of our ways of thinking, those two sets of, of thinking about human value, which are in all of our minds, I think are, are, are part of the, at the heart of the, the disconnect, I would say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm just, it's an interesting point that you're bringing up. It reminds me about the um, the the series "Show Me a Hero" that that I know we both have seen. The what? The the series "Show Me a Hero." Oh yeah, the Yonkers. Yes. yeah, yes. yeah. It was really good. Yeah, because again, that 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 theory of if you can afford to stay here, then you deserve to be here, um, is I think a, the argument that is levied around. Um, it's been levied at us at at neighborship recently mm-hmm. by our neighbor, um, and. And and a lot of the folks that that I think would be supportive of neighbors together could could make that argument. Um, I, I'm just curious, like how you how they you are making that argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And how um, do you how do you have a conversation with how do you have that postpartisan sort of creative negotiation conversation with somebody like that? Because I there's some truth to to it, but there is also, as we know, you know, we're two we're two black men who have a lot of skills and could do a lot of things, but have decided, you know, that meaning, I was, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say that we both have decided, you know, meaning is a little bit more important than money. And Absolutely. And, um, that is a good assumption. It's hard to make assumptions, <laughs> but yeah, much more important than money for me. And, and you know, you can look down on us all you want. You can look down, I'll, go, I'll talk for myself for a second. You, you can, you know, you can devalue me all you want. I have enough self-worth to, to know what my value is. Um, and you know, like I'll 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 stay in my my tiny home, and you can look down on me. But like, to have a a framework that that says that 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 house housing form is not legitimate, and then to have all that support that then actually forces you out, you know, that's that's real power, and that's that's a power that I w- or a narrative that I would love to figure out a way to to have a, a more thoughtful conversation. So I I'm under the belief first that it is possible to bring all of our neighbors in Oakland together. And that means everybody who lives here, not just people who have traditional housing. Uh, is it probable? No. 
what is possible? And we're going to go for it because we've made it happen in a very small section of our particular neighborhood. And that's why I know that it's possible. Because on Peralta and 8th Street and the lower bottoms of Oakland, California, if you're with the three-block radius from here, you know all your neighbors. You know where to come get food. You can have goats. You have chickens. You have livestock. People are caring about each other. We're protective of each other. We love each other. We know what each other do well. And it's a beautiful neighborhood. And we did that because we did it intentionally of trying to bring everyone together. And can it be scaled up? It's the difficult part of scaling up anything, as you know. But there are some things that we know help to make it possible. And I'm glad you used negotiation. Um, when you're negotiating, which is different than revolting, revolting is not a negotiation. So if you're revolutionary, you're not negotiating. You need to go start fighting. Mm. Figure out your revolution. I'm not advocating for any violence. I'm not advocating for anyone to do anything crazy. But what I'm saying is, Fidel Castro and and um, Che Guevara did not march in the streets to make their change. They went to the mountains and they got guns and weapons and they grew food and they built an army and then they went down and they took back what they believed was rightfully theirs. That's what a revolution is. In right. Haiti, they did not march. They did not sign petitions. They went through fire, and they hung their slave owners, and they took their island back. If you're revolutionary, stop talking and start doing. But us who are negotiating down here, which is what we're really doing, negotiations can go one or two ways. You can make ask for demands. If you're going to make demands, they come with consequences. For black people, what consequences can we levy? As poor people, what consequences can we levy? And is that the best approach? I don't think that's the best approach because demands that come with consequences end up being punitive and then you end up with the divisiveness that we have today. There is another way to negotiate that we employ, particularly in public sector negotiation, which in public sector negotiations, you're negotiating for a union, but the boss, quote unquote, is the city. And if the city is the representative of the people, then you're really representing, you're negotiating with the people, which means that you need to do what's best for the people first, and the wor not the workers second, but there's an order of operation. Workers may have demands for a lot of money. The people may say, this job needs to pay this much. It's, an, it's a living wage, and this is what we can afford. And you're going to have some conflict there, right? So as a union negotiator, when I, when I negotiate in the public sector, I always tell the public sector entity, I'm going to draw a direct line between, between what we ask for and improved services. That's my job. And to take the same interest. We have the same interest of seeing the city function or seeing this public entity function efficiently, which means lack of turnover, which means making our budgets, right, which means... You know, whatever it is, whatever success and best practices are, means those things. And it's called interest-based bargaining. Okay. And the interest-based bargaining approach is you define a goal, and then you get everyone to say that they want that goal. Mm. And then as intense as that conflict gets, if everyone's bargaining in good faith, you still end up with a goal everyone could be comfortable with. Right. 
and I would say in the housing context, I I feel like everybody could and should get behind a goal of creating more truly affordable, or I like the word that you use, accessible housing units. Um, and then it's just a question of, of, of how you get there. Well, oh, that's what that's why I think we can bring neighbors together in Oakland. Oakland's people are cool here, man. But we have to out the fringes. We have to out the anarchists. We have to out the extreme nimbies. We have to also out, and I say this with caution, <laughs> to super to zealot town biz. If you're not from Oakland, born and raised, you shouldn't even come here after you get out. That's just not gonna happen. Yeah, I'm New Oakland. I've been here eight years. It's not gonna happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's that thing too, right? Yeah. Where people would say, "Hey, I don't like this." They say, "Well, you shouldn't have come here then." Like, that's not the appropriate answer yeah. to someone who has a four-year-old daughter who a bullet just went through their door, sure. inches from their daughter's head. Don't come here. So basically, you're saying you're okay with living like this. You right. don't care about your four-year-old daughters. Right. No, you don't mean that. You're frustrated. You're angry. Right. You're lashing out. Yeah. And you're projecting. Right? So we need to get past that. That emotion is very basic. It's low vibration. We need to get past that emotion. We need to get past that reactionary yeah. part. And we need to realize, what are you here for is the question to ask your neighbor who you think is a gentrifier. That is a legit question. Welcome to the neighborhood. Why did you come right. here? Right. Yeah. And Right? Uh, and then talk to them. Right. Yeah, no, you're you're reminding me of this other interesting thing. Just back on that that thread of like people are often their worst. Um, they their interests they they advocate against their interests. I suppose they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, like on the well, on the yeah, on the note of like the the gentrification piece. There's there's just often this like there's this argument that you hear a lot uh, across next door in the neighborhoods about homeless folks coming from outside. Um, and I think there's some truth to it, but there is also the truth that like most of the people I talk to, they like literally like they grew up like a few blocks away, like they're camped out where they used to rent, you know? Um, and their neighborhood where they always live where they're, yeah, yeah. And, and the, but this narrative that you hear a lot, it, it, it almost, it sounds very similar to the narrative you hear on the, the national level around immigration. These outsiders are coming in. They're soaking up our resources. Mm. Get them out. Build a wall. They're xenophobic. Build a wall. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, sometimes I sit in these meetings and I'm like, okay, so you're a Democrat who's probably for, you know, thinking a little bit more thoughtfully about immigration and not for building a wall. You don't see the parallel. And they then, don't see the parallel. And then you're you're harp you're using the exact same narrative uh, uh, on a local level. Uh, well, what their narrative is again, like, I'll get both sides. I have to be an expert at both sides to bring people together. Yeah. So I have to really listen to both sides actively. Yeah. Which is difficult when you're a black union organizer. You know what side we typically lead. I fought for the working people my whole life. We lean blue, obviously, right? We lean to the left. We lean progressive. But 
when you're taking that mission on, because I'm an active uh, gun, I shoot guns. I teach people how to get firearms. Right. That puts me squarely in the 2A community, which puts me with a lot of team red people. Right. And because of that bond of firearms, which is a strong one, they'll get comfortable and start sharing their viewpoints. Right? Right. So I know a lot about what they think about that. There, another part is, if you enable people to live a lifestyle that's bad, you're gonna attract people from other places who want to come somewhere where they're free to, to be free. Mm. And mm-hmm. while, like you said, there is an element of truth to that. To make it more about that than the people who have lived in neighborhoods their entire lives, who now have to live on the street or the same place they once owned a home. And to dismiss that is extremely problematic. And we're also a free country. We, we pride us. I thought we prided ourselves on our mobility and the ability to move freely around our states and cities. The onus is being a good neighbor. Everybody has the responsibility to be a good neighbor. If you are, if you're on drugs, or if you have mental health issues, and you can't be a good neighbor, and I'm not going to say through no fault of your own. People make the choices in life. I'm not everybody's dealt a good hand. Some people are dealt perfectly good hands, and they end up still messed up in the game, right? But without going there, if you don't have the capacity to be a good neighbor for whatever reason, then society has the responsibility to step in. We're not doing that right now. We're allowing people to be bad neighbors, and that's such a small percentage. And also, because of our lack of support for our unhoused neighbors, we allow them to be played on by organized crime. And this is something no one's talking about. Most of the frustration around encampment stems from the problems in encampments due to organized crime. And I'll name two things that happen. You have a fentanyl epidemic mm-hmm. and you have an illegal dumping epidemic because you have a housing boom. Right. Every house that gets de- renovated or demoed has an enormous amount of industrial waste and trash. You hire people to get rid of it and then it goes go, go dump it by encampments because there's no rules there. People sell drugs, they have drugs in tents, they use the tent laws to, to run drugs. There's so many people in these encampments who are on fixed income. So if you have a group, a place, so the people who are saying this stuff on Team Red or who are even Team Blue, the Democrats and the older white folks, who are, even black people who are mad, they're coming with facts. They yeah. know what's happening. The issue is that now they're blaming the people who are being played upon or taking the brunt of this projection. And it goes back to now we're projecting upon the most vulnerable population that can't fend for themselves. We're shoveling all that. Can I curse? Go for it. Okay, so shit rolls downhill. (laughs) And we just rolled all the shit downhill to people who sleep in tents in their cars. Right, because while all those things are true, and I agree, and I've I've spent a lot of time walking around the Wood Street encampment, talking to folks, um, and yeah, there is organized crime. There is a lot of bad actors out there. And at the same time, there are people that are just, I just want a home. I just want, I just want to rest. I'm done. And they, they're most of the people and yeah, the, the, the overwhelming majority of the people fall in that category. And if they weren't an addict, uh, with alcohol or some other substance, they, sh- they sure get pushed in that direction when they get put in that environment because you can't get a solid eight hours of sleep you got to be vigilant you got to be awake 
and you just got to get through all of the trauma that comes with living in, it, in that it scenario. It leads you to drug and mental problems. Yeah. If you didn't have them when you started being outside, yeah. outside for a few years, you're probably going to have a substance abuse issue and some mental problems. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a too, it's tough. And there's a huge parallel between our system, our injustice system, that where you go in and you get conditioned and you get traumatized and you get you come out of you know from a societal perspective often um made into a social pariah yeah yeah and 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 not just that but then all of the 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 frameworks in our society say well you can't get housing because you came out of jail Mm -hmm. you can't get a job because you came out of jail Mm -hmm. so where do they end up they end up in the encampments because there's no other place to go and and this goes back again to my like i keep harping on this idea of like like folks who want to have a clean, safe neighborhood are, as they should want to have that, are often, the and the, the folks in, who I would say the NIMBYs in next door, are often the folks that are first to organize against uh, a halfway house in their neighborhood or, uh, you know, some sort of program for affordable housing or transitional housing for 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 chronically homeless folks in their neighborhood. And if you're going to stand in the way of those solutions and force people to be actively, they put time and money and resources into standing in the way of it. And then yeah. you, and that's and then that's increasing the problem that you don't want to have. You know, I, I agree. Um, I think the way to stop that is to let them know that the, it's I think now in Oakland, we're not going to have that much of a problem. The problem it's gotten to be such, so intense at this point that it's, you didn't. So right now there are like more organizations that I can count that are filing 501c3 numbers yeah. around organizing to a city around homelessness. And some of them are like, um, what's the group? The Oakland Compassion Project? Right. You heard of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were telling me um, about them. They? They're kind of new, right? Came 1,200 volunteers. Yeah. Doing amazing work, getting people vans so they can live in, off the tents, just doing the work, doing the things, right? Then the other half of them are the NIMBY types, mm-hmm. right? I, again, I talk to both of them. Yeah. I go to both of their meetings, right? Right, Because they're all here with, with a perspective. And what you find is that you can. there's a sweet spot here. I think that we all have to understand first the context of where we are in history and our world. And that things are probably going to get more challenging before they don't. Right. And the legitimate fear had given them a a, a different level of clarity, I would say, on some possible solution. So if you were to go to some places now that in the 80s and 90s fought against halfway houses, or even 10 years ago after 08, I don't think those places would fight against it today if you could ensure them that that would mean that the illegal dumping would stop and all of the, all the madness would stop. They'll take that option right now, gladly. Right? Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's, yeah. the paradigm's changed. Yeah. It's just changed. Yeah. Um, also, because deep down, they want to know what happened to them when they lose their house. <laughs> yeah. You got to consider that too. People are looking at that's where all this anxiety comes from. Is how many people are are under duress from the rent moratoriums and and forbearances for your mortgages? I could give you the numbers. Yeah. 
Numbers are bad. Let's just say that. I don't yeah. need to. I can give a lot of stats. I encourage anyone who's listening check your stats out. Stop listening to people and just repeating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> check them out. Right. If I'm wrong, email Adam and <laughs> yeah. say that guy was wrong. I'll put some. Uh, I'll try to right? put some show notes. But it's in really place. bad. It's an alarming number of people. <laughs> Tens of millions of people are yeah. going to be homeless. Yeah. If we don't, if we allow rent moratoriums to expire, or we don't. Figure that out. We yeah. just keep kicking this can down the road. Yeah, this can't happen for long. Yeah, right. So tell me about tell me about the encampment management policy because I know ah, that's EMP. I know that's a big part of of um, the neighbors together sort of town uh, sweep campaign. campaign I, I'd rather keep right. it under town sweep because okay. neighbors together. We're here again to promote resilience, unity, and preparedness, right. and that's everyone who lives here. All of us are neighbors. We're also here to make sure everybody's good neighbors, and we out our bad neighbors, and we give them a chance to be good neighbors, or we hold them responsible as a community. But in terms of the EMP, we have a town sweep campaign because Neighbors Together had four tenets. Okay. And the first is community safety. Okay. Second is accessible housing. Nice. Localized agricultural systems. Cool. And thriving local businesses. Cool. Right. We can't get to those other things. Accessible housing is directly tied to our community safety because people aren't housed or don't have access to housing, right? So the first mission because of this crisis, uh, and this is the number one thing, is to take this on in addition to building community farms and getting people to go outside and meet each other and, and start to like, you know get to know each other as neighbors and be more prepared for earthquakes or whatever could come to our way, right? Yeah. But the EMP encampment management policy is a policy that was unanimously voted on in Oakland back in October at the height of the election. Right. And Dahlia Dunstan, who was the administrator at the time, um, worked diligently across a lot of communities to put together this plan. And it provides a list of do's and don'ts for public camping. And it also d- divides the city into high sensitivity and low sensitivity areas. High sensitivity areas being by schools, businesses. There's a list. The high sensitivity areas encompass 90% of Oakland. Right. And that's one of the critiques, right? It's like, now the critique th- is there's all these off limit places that you can't be. The do's and what, what high what the the differential between high sensitivity and low sensitivity is about the enforcement of the policy, not about whether or not people can live there. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Right. The yeah. EMP clearly states whether high sensitive or low sensitive areas encampment closure is the last option, and you have laws on the books that everyone's aware of right now in California that you have to provide people housing. Right. Right? If you're going to if you're going to say they have to leave. Right, right, right. A couple things that are and Project Room Key's doing great work with that. A lot of people are, are doing good work with that. Yeah. People are realizing now that you need to keep communities together. The community that lives in an encampment it supports each other. Yeah. That's like, to many people, that's one of the most important things in their life. That's what's giving them meaning. Right. So while you think you're helping someone by taking them from their tent to a hotel room, if they're in a hotel room and five miles away from where the tent was and they're around no one who they knew before and they have no job and they're already suffering from some duress mentally or drugs-wise, right. how does you help them? Well, You get what I'm saying? So yeah. in itself, 
and you need to be more intentional about the housing you provide. Yeah. But you have to provide housing legally before you close down an encampment. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I just I want to jump in uh, on that note, and then and then um, we can kind of continue talking about it a little bit. But on the note of like providing housing, I think it's I, I definitely caught some stuff on next door in reaction to our situation at neighborship. Uh, where somebody wrote something like, there's plenty of legitimate pathways to affordable housing. Bump. You guys are just idiots, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and my response was like, yeah, that's kind of like, I don't know, that's just kind of like saying like, you know, the pandemic doesn't exist and people wearing masks are idiots. I, I think like legit, like offering people housing can be um, in the form of something like you can go over to this cabin community where you have to live in one shed with another stranger um, no, just sharing a space with another person you don't know is enough. But that's but but I, but I know from from talking to folks at the human services department that that is like one of the few things that they can offer somebody. That like they it, can offer someone. It, so like if they've got to to satisfy that requirement of offering somebody some sort of housing so that they can then go, you either got to leave or take oh, yeah, this, yeah. this. So I'm, I'm very well aware. And so that's, here's, that's here's, not really. Here's the thing about that. A neighbor together is very aware of that. And we will never support any encampment closures that don't come with acceptable housing right. arrangement. Right. And we put acceptable there because we're working with other groups like Oakland Compassion Project and hopefully Hog and other groups so they can give us cues to what's acceptable. But right. something has to be acceptable. Right. Right. Yeah, but so that's you can't we can't have a moving goalpost. Let's define what's acceptable. Sure. And then if they meet that requirements, we allow encampments to be closed. Yeah, because there's a thing here where what's acceptable becomes a, a, a goalpost gets moved quite often, in what I've witnessed. Well, but but I think f rightly so because everybody's different, and like you said to your point, point, your point earlier about you know somebody going putting getting put in a hotel room five miles away, for some people that might be great. You know, if I'm working with the Union Point folks, and they're all doing that. They're all in hotels, and. I th the mother of her kids? Are she with her kids? You're talking about Deanna? She's like eight kids, yeah. You know she's in my video, my campaign video. I went uh, down there like eight times during my campaign. I did. I watched one of your videos and yeah. I did I did see yeah, Deanna. No, I a couple, yeah, I, I interviewed them extensively. She's She's um, got like a bunch of adult kids, so they're... She's got a the little daughter, the skinny one, a small... She's got... Yeah, she's got... It's a multi-generational family there. Yeah. And they're like deep. Yeah. I, I well I yeah I haven't I I know Deanna well but I haven't I, I was concerned about that I I don't know if we're talking about the same woman I haven't seen any young we're talking about young the same kids woman. That's okay her name. yeah but she's the matriarch she's older yes yeah yeah anyway I mean what I'm I was just trying to say that like there's some people that that works and then there's some people that that doesn't work to your point earlier um, and everybody's different right uh, as far as acceptable housing okay fine you know beggars can't be choosers. You know, give them something. I think the the narrative that I'm trying to point out, the narrative I'm trying to point out is that people will then make the case that, oh, well, they they just want to be there. Um, and some people make that. That's case. true. Some some people like the mavens of the world, if you know local politics and you talk to people on Wood Street, maven makes that case a lot. And I think at the detriment of a lot of folks that don't want to be there and they only have that space. Um, so. There, I've talked to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who want to be there. Yeah. And aren't good neighbors. 
And you know what, Seneca, you're totally right. And I mean, it's logical, right? Like free rent, you have, a, especially over in Wood Street area, you have basically free reign. Most people I talk to, they've got like three um, rigs, you know, they've got plenty of space and they don't have any rules. And, you know, I, I mean, when you're struggling, that makes sense. It's, it's, it's such a complicated thing, and we're not going to solve the world in a conversation. Yeah. But I, I would say that the best thing about the encampment management policy is in its name. It I, doesn't say encampment closure policy. Right. It's not like Austin where they're making public camping illegal. Right. And they just put it up the boat and made public camping illegal. Right. And within city limits. No, it's encampment management policy. It's meant to manage our encampment. Yeah. Until we can find a better solution and make sure that it doesn't propose a significant public safety risk. I I did I I mean I, uh, two things I I did read it just th this morning and it does mention this idea of like working with a nonprofit to help folks get services there, um, and and support them in being good neighbors, um, and and then also there is like the some of the rules there that you could see like you know uh somebody can only has to be remain in, in a 12 by 12 footprint and these sort of specific codes from a tiny house perspective tiny house perspective these codes can then be used to have somebody come in and say hey you're in violation you know now i have a right to hassle you and i think that's the biggest now I have a right to ask you to correct this violation or, or move you right so it could be seen it, it, it's because it's a policy and not law, it's as flexible as the person who's administering it. Right. As you can see by the fact that they passed the policy and haven't done anything in six months. Right. It's enormously, okay, not anything. They did actually have one encampment closure by the Home Depot in East Oakland. Right. Under the, that was the only thing, that, uh, encampment closure. The, po the encampment policy has a list of, a manifest online of, of when dumping is and when, um, when the porta potties are changed, there, there is like a structure of when camps are serviced. You can, you can check online. Right. Um, that's part of it. So they've done a little bit there, but it's about, it gives you an opportunity to triage. I think triage is a really important word here, mm. right? When you come upon a disaster, like an earthquake or a hurricane, an earthquake or a hurricane is an act of God. Right. No one had anything to do with it. Right. When you come upon that, you don't say, let's have, 15 meetings and hire 30 staff and have another 10 meetings and a bunch of kumbaya think tanks to figure out how we're going to help people. Right. When people are literally dying. And you don't and you don't go point fingers at hey it's your fault that this exactly. earthquake you happened. You just get it's to work fault. saving lives. Right. right and right. when you but here's the thing about triage that's uncomfortable for some people. Yeah. I have a neighbor named Dean. Dean goes to he's a first responder. He doesn't go pull people out of rubble, he's a mental health specialist. He sits in a tent and people come talk to him so they can unfuck their heads yeah. after making life to self decisions all day. And this is the hard part. If you're triaging and you go into an encampment, every situation is different. But we know some general numbers. 70% have drug and, drug and mental health addiction and we have a huge fentanyl epidemic right now that's not making it any better. Yeah. All right, and fentanyl is a big part of it. It's just as it's just as devastating as crack, if not more. Sure. For people to understand, 
the influence of fentanyl in right. our neighborhoods right now. Right. And and how a lot of things that have anything to do with homeless people who are down and out are a force multiplied for this problem. And it's the conversation that needs to be had it needs to be where people are willing to put their guards down and have an interest on getting people into accessible housing. We have it's ten thousand people max. We're telling me we don't have accessible housing for people. And isn't that this is this is getting to the point now where somebody needs to be publicly flogged. <laughs> our leaders are acting they're they're infighting in our city now with the with the decades long corruption in Oakland. Yeah. Like we like we code to developers. Yeah. And we've divested in our community and now we wanna hurry up and make up this ground. Uh, fucking decades of redlining and gentrification right. and, and, and racism, environmental racism. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not, right? right? So if, if you want to start to solve the problem, first thing we need to do is triage. Yeah, that's a great point. Triage, all right? There are some people we cannot help. What should happen to them? What's going to happen to them is they need, they need to be have access to a inpatient mental health institution. And that's, that's housing. If you're inpatient, you're in housing. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and I think that's that's another part of the the layered set of crises that you reference. Public will is, to do that. Well, is is the mental the, the mental health institutions that got deregulated and, and defunded Reagan, in, in the Reagan you. area yeah. era, and and all those folks ended up on the streets. Yeah. And well, where are those people who did that? Where are they now? The biggest complainers, I bet, if they're not dead yet. Right. If you were part of that decision in the Reagan era to let mental to stop. Divestion our mental health as a state, you are directly responsible for the encampment crisis and homeless crisis in California right, right. now. And okay, we probably should wrap up, but my biggest question, Senate. I get mad, Adam. I, I start yelling. <laughs> no, my biggest question though is how how do we convince the neighbors who who rightly want to have a clean and safe environment that that in some ways can put a lot of pressure on the city to drop the hammer on folks that need a hammer dropped on them the least how do we how do we convince them or yeah how do we negotiate with them to be good neighbors in the way of supporting mental health facilities up drug uh substance abuse support systems more funding for mental health workers to go out and macro and work with people because because it's it's housing first but it's also you're, you're familiar with housing first right uh housing first is a different discussion okay. I, I have i think it's complex okay housing i say this housing is the solution to yeah. our encampment crisis like a bag of groceries it's the solution to someone with anorexia Okay, I gotta think on Technically, that you're correct. They need to eat the food, but they're not gonna just access it. You can't access it if I'm not in my right state of mind, if right. I'm addicted to drugs. Right. It is so much deeper than that. Right, so we, it's a yes and, right? It's, it's a yes and. Right. We need first, support. We, the, the, the lack of housing is, and the price of housing is, I don't like to use the word, overuse the word criminal, but it's immoral. How about that? Forget the laws. I think it's immoral that we have to spend a significant amount of our life to access housing. Right. And even then, it's up in jeopardy. If I get sick or hurt or lose my job. Right. Right? That's immoral, the way we have this game. Right. So I, I, all of you, the, the activists who feel that way, I'm with you there. Right. The, the issue is 
not willing to work with people when it's not a perfect solution to what you think is, you're not going to get to say what the exact solution is because you don't have the resources for that solution. You have to negotiate with people who do. Yeah. That's just how it works. So when I hear people, we have a jail in Alameda. Every time I mention that jail that's sitting empty, people say, you want to put people in a prison? And I say, it's concrete. If I make that prison into a condo, people buy them. Yeah. It's accessible housing that we can put people in right now where they have individual living quarters. Yeah. They can come Plumbing, and go as they yeah. please. It's safe. It's concrete. You can't burn it down. Yeah. Right? Like, it's it's doesn't have to be a prison. It's a structure. You have an army base. You have all these different lots. You have tiny house lots. You've created housing, Adam. That's housing. I know it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, That's, and, yeah. Not unhoused people. Yeah. There's nobody unhoused in, in neighborship. Those are housed people. Right. And to your point, if you can get the cost down for just that piece of the puzzle, the housing, then you free up money for the other piece of the puzzle, which is the the, the support, the labor for for therapists and and um, substance. They have to have the public will. To, to the question I didn't answer, that I went on another rant, but I'll answer the question: How do you convince the the neighbors? First of all, I need to realize that some of them ain't good neighbors too. All of our bad neighbors ain't just people in encampments. Do not by default a good neighbor because you have money. Right. It's it's important to note that being in the, the neighbor includes the per, the person in the encampment. Absolutely, right? Right, right. all neighbors. Right. Anybody who's living here, you are beating heart in right. this neighborhood. You are a neighbor. Right. That's why we're using that term. Right. That term. So you guys use that terminology intentionally. Yeah. We're using that intentionally to put people in a mind state that these people that we're responsible for each other. Right. There's a, there's a level of responsibility there. You're not a good neighbor if you. Are not compassionate. Right. I had somebody tell me today, you're not compassionate because you don't have to deal with people, all this stuff I deal with. First of all, he assumed that he's wrong. I live in the lower bottoms. I deal with it all. Yeah. And to him, I said, I'm sorry you have to deal with these things. I do deal with them. Please don't assume. And most, and also, people have dealt with genocide. People have dealt with war, famine, starvation, and worse, and have kept their light and humanity for their fellow person. Mm. Okay, this is lightweight. <laughs> That's a good suck point. it up. <laughs> this is lightweight. We are collapsing. You're gonna see a lot worse. You need to suck it up and get in directly involved. Town sweep is about getting involved in your neighborhood. You get your own broom. You go outside and you talk to your neighbors, uh, housed and unhoused. You help clean up together. There are programs that are tremendously successful where they pay encampment inhabitants to clean up their own encampment. But there's a lack of public will for these programs, but they've shown to work. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, yeah. And save money. Yeah, yeah. I'm up for all of that. The thing is, people listening to me are going to be confused because it's like, what box are you in? Right, right. The, the one where I don't go left, right, I go up, down. Even you have integrity or you don't. Let's use our head and our heart. Let's talk to people. Let's have a diversity of perspective. But let's at least have the interest of housing everybody immediately. But for some people, that's not the housing that they control. You need inpatient drug rehabilitation or inpatient mental health rehabilitation. They're going to be taken against your will and put in those situations. That's where it gets dicey. That's, that's where it gets fascist. That's what right? has to happen? That's where. But but you could say that that you know that that could be fascist. Cause it could be what? Fascist. It's not fascist. We have no issue with our criminal justice system. No one calls them, I mean, it is fascist, but that's because it's racist. But we yeah. all understand that there needs to be a jail 
We never say we abolish prison altogether. We're like, hey, prison's racist. We have a school to prison pipeline. Yeah. We're criminalizing nonviolent behaviors for drugs. Right. We don't say that someone who does something violent or whatever shouldn't go be like, no one argues with removing public will for someone who's shown that they're not a good neighbor and it's a danger to society. No, Dave, definitely. A danger to society, yes. But if somebody is a heroin addict who's functional, who's just like collecting a lot of junk, you know, I forcing them to go to some sort of rehab against their will, I don't know that that's, that's the right. That's fascist. You don't do it like that. So here's how it will happen. If that person who's a heroin addict breaks into your car and steals your $5,000 laptop, then you can... Before that was grand theft larceny and you would go to jail, right. now you're forced to go into your mental health. There you, you know? go. I mean, and that would, yeah, that would be that would better serve that person and better serve the society. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. But yeah. Here's the thing. We're not set up like that for criminal codes. Our criminal codes aren't set up like that. That's a big part of why we can't get a hold of this thing. Right. You either are forced to criminalize someone or let them be. Right. Right. That's where we're at. That's there's a big part of the policy issue that we're facing. No nuance. There's no, there's no like... Because the Reagan era and all the stuff that happened after that, I'm, I'm not, I'm ignorant to a lot of it, so it's not my exp area of expertise, but we're not doing something right. So that's what I mean. No, you shouldn't say, hey, who, who are you? Let me do an intake. Are oh, you addicted to drugs? You got, you're a hoarder? Well, I'm taking you. No. You say, hey, you can't have all this stuff. Hey, we're going to cite you. Hey, now we're going to take it. Hey, if you, break, if you get caught breaking these laws that I made for public safety, our accountability metric is to force you into help you need. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not, not force you into jail or inhumane conditions. Yeah. It's it, tough. It's tough to swallow, but some people need to be in a mental institution. It's dangerous territory because who's to say what's best for someone else? Mental health specialists? Um, we have to develop that. One thing that we, who to study that? We're gonna allow somebody to continuously to do property crimes. No, no, I yeah, I'm not, I'm not advocating. But for how that. do you, I saying. know? But how do you solve that without criminal? I don't want people going to jail for property crime because they're strung out and they're black and poor. I don't. I know that's not. I know that's not going to help them. It's going to hurt them. Right. Right. So I would literally rather that not happen and deal with the fallout. But I, now it's come to the point where what a what a like moment of truth here. Right, democracy works a certain way, and a certain number of people are here, and pitchforks are out. Well, uh, let's wrap it up. I was going to ask you for final final thoughts. What what should we expect from from neighbors together going forward? What do you what are your, what are some of your visions for that, or any other final thoughts? Oh, um, I would love to use the platform for neighbors together. It's the same. We want everyone in Oakland to join us. We want to. People who have differences of opinion to come to our community garden on 8th and Peralta and debate about it. That's right. We were talking about trying yeah, to organize about conversations. Yeah, come, come like we used to. Have people there. We'll set it up. We'll have cameras. We'll live stream it. We'll do whatever. If you have an opinion and you think policy should be done a certain way, come debate about it. Don't bully online. Don't make memes. Come debate about it. I think that would be really cool if we could set that right? up. Right? And then we'll see who's really got the 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 medal, who's really done the homework, who really understands the depth of this problem. Because let me tell you, our activists who are out there working and not they're not behind computer screens. They're in the encampments cleaning it up. They're solutionaries. The only one who's taking direct personal action to make this city a better place is a solutionary and I salute you. Whether I agree with what you're doing or not. 
you're doing the right thing because you're taking action. If you're on next door bitching, if you're on citizen bitching, either side, either like you just moved to Oakland, those people too, stop it. It's silly. <laughs> right. And the people who are mad at the world, like you didn't move into a fucking black neighborhood, get, welcome to the party. Now you get to see what institutional racism feels like. Right. You don't get to reverse all of the drama here because your white ass moved in here. Welcome to the party. Guess what? A lot of them say, I'm here for it. Yeah. A lot of my white neighbors and our other non-black, they're here for it. They're ready to be solutionaries. And many of them are ostracized because of their skin color. Many of them are ostracized because they bought a big, nice house. And now because of that, they don't have a right to contribute to the conversation. That's wrong, too. Totally. Everybody who wants to make Oakland a better place, come join neighbors together. We're going to do this together, but there is somebody to be held accountable, and that's our electives. That's their job. They represent us. They can't do that infighting stuff. It is their job to not fight internally and weaponize us neighbors against each other for their fights over the seven districts in Oakland. We're not doing that anymore. We have a looming mayoral race. Imagine the power of all of the neighbors in Oakland speaking with one voice to demand from our city elected that they meet us halfway to providing housing, providing mental health services, and drug rehabilitation services to our most vulnerable population. Right on, man. Well said. Do uh, Can we expect a mayoral, mayoral run from you at some point? Oh, hell no. <laughs> no? Uh, I have to say no. I mean, I would say that if Neighbors Together is tremendously successful, then we will absolutely have a say in the next mayor of Oakland. Awesome. However that works out. Well, thank you, Seneca. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. It's been fun. If you've got ADU or tiny home questions, give me a shout at tinylogic.ninja.